The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Welcome to a discussion of radical fundamental principles of freedom, rational self-interest, laissez-faire capitalism, and individual rights. The Yaron Brooks Show starts now. All right, everybody, welcome, and I hope you're having a great, uh, a great weekend. Uh, I have, uh, I, I've often broadcast the show from uh, lots of different places around the world. You've heard me from um, Europe, all over Europe, from Azerbaijan, from Baku, from Tbilisi, from Geneva, from all kinds of places around the world. And today, I'm actually broadcasting to you from my new home. Uh, I have I have uh, moved recently, and I have moved to a, uh, a new location, and I'm actually broadcasting to you today from, of all places, Puerto Rico. I've moved to Puerto Rico. I have left California and uh, and moved to Puerto Rico. It's uh, beautiful and sunny and tropical. I can work from anywhere in the world. And I've chosen Puerto Rico because basically I get to stay a U.S. citizen, but I get to pay Puerto Rican taxes, which for Americans moving to Puerto Rico are very, 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 very low. So I get to escape the ridiculous taxes that exist in California. I get to escape the ridiculous taxes that the federal government has imposed on us. Even after tax reform, taxes are insanely high. And I get to live in a tropical country. Now, granted, sometimes there's no electricity, uh, so it's an adventure, and uh, it, it's kind of exciting. But, yeah, we're broadcasting today from my new studio in Puerto Rico. Uh, I hope sound is good. Uh, I hope you guys are listening uh, and, and everything's cool. We had a little bit of uh, some challenges, sound challenges, uh, when we started out today. I think it, it's working okay. We will see as we go along. But um, but cool, uh, Yaron Brook Show from now on is going to be broadcast from Puerto Rico. Happy Happy New Year, everybody. I mean, last time we broadcast, it was literally the end of 2017. Now it's the beginning of 2018. And I want to do a couple of things on this show. I, I want to focus on two things. I want to do something. Actually, I got this idea from the Atlantic Magazine that is doing something uh, like this uh, I want to look back 50 years. I want to look back to 1968. I think gaining some historical perspective on where we are today is of enormous benefit. I think getting a sense of what life was like in America 50 years ago, and there are fewer and fewer of us still around who remember 50 years ago. I don't because I wasn't living in 1968. I was not in America. Um, Where was I living in 1968? Wow. Uh, 1968, I was actually living in London, in a, in a, in a, in the, in the east side of London, in Hackney, for those of you who know anything about, about London. In those days, a very, very lower working class area within London. I actually had, again, for those of you who know, um, uh, who, who know a little bit about accents, I had a Cockney accent in those days. I, I spoke Cockney. My, I have somewhere I have tapes of uh, me speaking Cockney. I should probably put it up on YouTube. I'll get I probably get a lot of hits on that. And um, but I was I wasn't in the U.S. and I was I was only seven years old. Uh, but 50 years ago, 1968, 
was a really, really important year for the United States. I think it was a uh, historically one of the most significant years in American history, not for the good. Not for the good, by the way. I think the country took a turn in 1968 uh, away from sanity. It, it, it was building throughout the 60s. Uh, 68 and 69 were particularly bad years for everything American, and we'll, we'll talk about why, and we'll talk about it. So I think it's a good, it's a good time as we start 2018 to look back 50 years to uh, 1968 to that turbulent year uh, and, and get some perspective on where we are today, get some perspective on life in America in 2018, and maybe even tease out some of the causes for why life is the way it is today in, in, in 2018. Uh, what can we learn from 1968 to explain some of what is going on uh, today in 2018? And I also want to use today's show to look a little bit into the future. Okay, what, what can we expect from this year? What can we expect uh, from our economy? What can we expect from our politics? What can we expect from our foreign policy? What can we expect from Donald Trump? To the extent that it is sane to make any kind of predictions, I will try, I will be careful not to make too many and too broader predictions because I know, I know how dangerous uh, that is, uh, predicting the future. Is uh, is for fools for the most part, but we will we will try to do the best that we can. So um, again, happy New Year! It's kind of exciting to be starting a new year. Uh, last year um, was it was a pretty nutty year. I, I talked about that last week. Uh, I think hopefully 2018 is going to bring a bit more sanity. Although I I expect probably not. What was going on in the United States in, in 2018, uh, in, sorry, in 1968? What was going on in the United States? What is, what, 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 what kind of a world were we living in in 1968? And how much of what happened in 1968 echoes or, or predicts or, or, you know, reflects what we're living through today? And I think much of it does. I think much of it does, and, and, and uh, we're going to talk about that. But let's, let's just give you a, a quick timeline of big stories, big stories in 1968, just to give you a sense of, in many respects, uh, other than maybe the Civil War, and maybe there are other periods in American history, but at least in modern American history, maybe the most chaotic, crazy, nutty, dangerous year in American history. Started out the year in January of, 19, uh, of 1968 with the Tet Offensive during the war in Vietnam. So 68 reflects the escalation of the war in Vietnam, a war I think people at the time had no clue why we were fighting. And as we progressed into the 19, early 1970s, more and more and more people came to question and doubt and, and uh, you know, ultimately, ultimately, you have to admit, we surrendered that war, lost that war, retreated from that war, and gave it up, but not, not before thousands and thousands and thousands of Americans died in that war, tens of thousands, actually. In March of 16, the Lai Massacre, where American troops massacred hundreds of Vietnamese c civilians, this was disclosed only a year later, but this is, the, this is the intensification of that war and that war becoming central 
to American politics. Because in March 31st of 1968, LBJ, a president who got much of his agenda passed, I think as a consequence of the fact that JFK had been assassinated, must have agenda the war on poverty, the civil rights uh, uh, bills, so much of what he was seeking, actually he got passed, announces in March 31st of that year that he will not seek re-election, which suggested that the war in Vietnam was becoming central and that he was unpopular because of the war in Vietnam. Nixon wins the election that year, promising to get us out of Vietnam. <laughs> of course, it takes him a long time to fulfill that promise, but that was a big basis for which he got elected. Notice that it's the Democrats who got us into the war, the Democrats that wanted to continue to fight the war, and a Republican who suggested getting out of that war and got elected based on that, didn't actually do it, uh, and, and did it very badly, but yeah, we got out of the war in the end. April 4th, Martin Luther King is assassinated. 1968, April 4th, Martin Luther King is assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee in a motel, and he had riots in a hundred different cities that last several days, so race riots all across the United States. So the largest riots take place in Washington, D.C. and Chicago. April 11th, to some extent, inspired or motivated is a better word by the assassination, you get the Civil Rights Act of 1968, which has all kinds of stuff about uh, uh, fair housing and all kinds of uh, restrictions on the ability to discriminate in housing policy. Late in April, you get substantial protests, riots in Columbia University, in an Ivy League university, in a major university in the United States. Now you've got, before it had, you know, in the early 60s, started in Berkeley, spread across the United States, and the riots, the student riots on the university, which I think play a huge role in this era, actually reach, uh, reach uh, Columbia. Ultimately, student protesters are forcibly and violently removed by the New York Police Department. These protests receive nationwide, nationwide um, appeal. Again, we're looking at 1968 to see if we can learn something from 1968 about 2018, and partially to get a little perspective. Everybody is so down on the world in which we live today. Sometimes looking back in history and, and looking and seeing that Things were even nuttier, maybe, 50 years ago. It's a good exercise. Good exercise. On June of that year, Robert F. Kennedy, the, the leading nominee of the Democratic Party for president, probably would have beaten, uh, probably would have beaten Nixon, is assassinated on live television. Television plays a huge role because before 68, Television was not that popular in the sense that, not that popular, it was a new technology, it hadn't been adopted. But by 1968, most households had television. And it was broadcasting all of this. In August of that year, you have massive demonstrations and riots and chaos and police beating up demonstrators at the Democratic National Convention. Massive demonstrations and riots. Tear gas, all filmed, by the way, live on American television. So again, perspective. Perspective is as bad as some people might have thought that the, the, the national conventions were last year. Nothing as compared to 1968. 
And then, uh, this one's kind of funny, right? September 7th, 1968. It's kind of funny given, given all the talk and given Donald Trump and everything else. Uh, massive, a, a big protest of a hundred women protest. Miss America pageant. The Miss America pageant, which was dominated by Donald Trump or run by Donald Trump, uh, later on, you know, in the 2000s, um, is, um, is kind of the beginning of a new wave of feminism. The demonstration is viewed as that. And then uh, on November 5th, Richard Nixon wins the presidency. All right? The Republican wins the presidency as a kind of a backlash against all of kind of the liberal agenda, the war, what's going on in campuses. And this is the first use of the term, of the term, the silent majority. The silent majority of, of Americans vote in Richard Nixon in spite of the elites supporting the Democratic nominee. All right, that's a quick outline. Let's tease that out a little bit and find some parallels and find some causal relationships. When we come back, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to your Ron Brook show on the Blaze Radio Network. And we'll be back after this. Israeli military veteran and radical for capitalism. It's the Yaron Brook Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Brooke. All right. Uh, Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, and uh, we're back. And we're talking about 1968, uh, 50 years ago exactly. And, um, you know, and a lot has happened since then. And a lot has kind of stayed the same. Or maybe not so much stayed the same as circled, uh, you know, circled back in, in a sense that I think we moved away from 1968 and in some respects, I see a lot of similarities between what was going on in 1968 and today. We've, we've still got a, a war going on. We don't have quite the troops committed. We're not taking the casualties, certainly. Thousands of kids dying a year in Vietnam. I mean, there's nothing like that today. And, and much of why I think we don't fight wars in any kind of uh, intense way anymore is, is maybe because of the lessons of Vietnam. We're not willing to take those kind of casualties, uh, that, that's part of the backlash away from what happened during the Vietnam War. We're, but we're in a war. Uh, we're in a war. We're in a war all over the Middle East. Uh, uh, you know, the other side, the people who are attacking us, the people who want to kill Americans at every opportunity, they know we're at war. We just haven't figured it out. And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a war like on a low flame kind of thing. It's not like Vietnam where... They did nothing to us. They were not interfering in America in any way. They weren't killing Americans. We should have never entered that war. It wasn't our war. We had no business being in Vietnam. You know, we had no business trying to slow down the spread of communism. Communism wasn't coming to America. I mean, other than if you count what's been happening in America the last 50 years, but communism wasn't a threat, a military threat to America. What the hell are we doing in Vietnam? Now we're waging a war where they came to America. 
They blew us up. And they're seeking out Americans all over the world and trying to blow them up. They're engaging and trying to kill us. But we don't care. We don't care. Partially because they're not that smart and they're not that successful. That is, at the big picture, very, very, very few Americans are dying in the hands of Islamists, the jihadis. The jihadis are just not that sophisticated. They're not very smart. They're not very, they don't have big weapons. You know, the Iranians don't have a nuke yet. And, and they're just not that, you know, they're not that smart. Terrorists are not that smart. They're just, they're just not that able. So they, they pulled off a very sophisticated attack on 9-11, an attack which could have been easily thwarted if the CIA and the FBI had been talking to one another, or if uh, Bill Clinton had gone after Osama bin Laden when he had the opportunity, or if George Bush had gone after bin, bin Laden when he had the opportunity, if, if they'd acted just semi in American self-interest, that would have been thwarted, but they didn't. So that was a sophisticated attack, and they really haven't been able to attack us since in any kind of sophisticated way. What you get since are these one-off, one-off attacks uh, against the United States, these lone wolf attacks, nothing very sophisticated, nothing with mass casualties. Tragic, horrible, disgusting, worthy of defending ourselves against, but not something you know, that is upsetting Americans so much as they, they I don't know, they would stop going shopping or, or volunteer to serve in the military or actually advocate for military response actually to defend us. Now, it's like a, it's like a mosquito bite rather than, uh, rather than anything uh, more dramatic than that. And therefore, nothing really much has happened. Uh, you know, we've been appeasing the people who actually do this in places like Saudi Arabia and Pakistan, President Obama, to his credit, uh, not President Obama, man, President Trump, to his credit, but just a little bit of credit, um, has just cut a little bit of the funding we're giving the Pakistanis. We've been giving them billions of dollars over the last, since 2001, what is it, uh, 17 years, 16 years, billions of dollars to one of the places where, which is training uh, training grounds of uh, of terrorists, one of the places they harbored Bin Laden for years and years and years. And don't give me that they didn't know where Bin Laden was. Of course, Pakistani intelligence knew where he was. They were helping hide him. And yet, we still gave them money. Bush gave them money. Obama gave them money. Now Trump has cut off some of the money, and some of the rhetoric is pretty good about they have to shape up, but eh, nothing really was done about it, right? Uh, not, not, nothing substantial. We will see what happens. Let me, let me be skeptical. We will see if this is sustainable. We will see that we cut the real mass amount of support that we give Pakistan. We shouldn't be giving them a dime. It's very simple. We shouldn't be giving them a dime. They are harborers of terrorists. They are supporters of terrorism. The military and intelligence support Al-Qaeda and have supported, um, and supports the Taliban and, and a supporting ISIS in Afghanistan, this is not a regime that should be supported at all. At all. All right, anyway. So we're fighting a war. We're not, we're kind of fighting a war. We're kind of not fighting a war. We're pretending to fight a war, not fighting a war. Um, but I would, 
I would cut off immediately all ties, take away the ambassador, stop funding everything from countries that are, that are supporting those who would destroy America. That's real America first. Again, I'm going to contrast my foreign policy with, with Trump's. I am the real America first guy, right? No embassy in Pakistan, no support, no money, zero, not cut 300 billion, but zero, nothing. Right? We're still giving them, a, you know, hundreds of billions, but we'll cut 300. Right? Just like I said the other day, out of the United Nations, no presence in the United Nations, no money to the United Nations, we should not be supporting organizations or countries that are dedicated in any way to the destruction of the United States, period. It's very simple. Very simple. Right? This should be a real America first strategy. Donald Trump's strategy is sometimes a little bit, when he feels like it, America first-ish. America first-ish. Not America first, but first-ish. Why, you know, why are we still giving money to Pakistan? Why are we in the United Nations? I mean, Nikki Haley seems pretty good. I'm kind of impressed by Nikki Haley. Why is she in the United Nations? What a waste. What a waste. And why are we sanctioning this evil organization by having such a talented woman there who every time she speaks sanctions the existence of an immoral organization, of an organization that should not exist? Uh, somebody's asking, why does the U.S. support these countries at the moment? What is the reason? Well, because the idea is that you can buy people's love. This is an idea both Democrats and Republicans adhere to. This is an idea, by the way, that General Mathis and Petraeus support. It's the idea that if you give people money, then they're less likely to fight you, that they're more inclined to listen to you that they're more inclined to change and to shift. Now, Pakistan is an important country. Pakistan is important because it is a Muslim country with nuclear weapons. It is the only Muslim country in the world with nuclear weapons. And a lot of them, not just a few, a lot. Now, they developed them particularly in response to the Indians, to, the, to what they perceive as a, as a threat from the, the country of India. But they have nukes. It's a Muslim country. They could export those nukes to Iran, Saudi Arabia, any of those people, if they chose to. They could give it to a terrorist organization. And the idea is if we pay them money, that appeases them, that quiets them, that, that prevents them from doing really, really bad things. But that's never worked in history. Appeasing your enemy doesn't work. It never has. Giving money to the people who are trying to kill you doesn't work. Ask George Bush, Mathis, and Petraeus who gave suitcases full of cash to Sunni tribal leaders during the surge to stop the insurgency. It stopped the insurgency, but then just a few years later, it created ISIS. ISIS was funded by the Bush administration, by our generals who believed that if you give money to the enemy, that'll make them love you. That'll make them your friend. All right, when we come back, we're going to continue drawing parallels with 68. I went off there on a tangent a little bit, uh, but we'll keep doing tangents. And uh, but, but we have to take a hard break here. You're listening to your own book show on the Blaze Radio Network. You're on. 
Rock on the Blaze Radio Network. Brooks Show. All right, we're back. Uh, you're listening to the Iran Brooks Show. We're taking on 1968, 50 years ago, and we're going to talk about uh, we're talking about 2018. What to expect of 2018? I know Mike, Mike from Pennsylvania has called in. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep you on hold for a while, buddy, because you're off topic. Um, the off topic segment of the show is the last portion of the second hour. So if you want to stay online until then, that's fine. Um, but uh, but I want to I want to stick to to- I want to try to stick to topic for a while. And by the way, you can call in if you have thoughts of 1968, if you remember 1968, or or if you uh, have any concerns about 2018 and what what's in our future. If you want to discuss any of that, you can call in 1-888-900-3393, 1-888-900-3393. So one thing. We can draw from the discussion about Vietnam and the discussion about the war that we engage in today is that America first foreign policy, we haven't had that in the last 50 years. Uh, uh, the war in Vietnam was a stupid war of self-sacrifice. The war we engage in today is not focused truly on American interests. It's again a war of self-sacrifice. We're sacrificing ourselves for what? Who knows? At least in, in Vietnam, we were supposedly sacrificing ourselves to combat communism in the, in the globe. How did that work out? Uh, South Vietnam became communist uh, less than a year after we withdrew. After, sorry, after we signed a peace deal. Right? Uh, Kissinger, by the way, got a Nobel Prize for the South-North Vietnamese peace deal which the North Vietnamese broke as soon as he got the prize, invaded South Vietnam and took it over. And communism continued to expand globally during the 1970s. Vietnam was just a waste. Tens of thousands of American kids died for absolutely zero nothing. Nothing. Because our politicians did not put an America first, truly an America first, not a Donald Trump American first, foreign policy together, and we still don't have. We still don't have an American first foreign policy. Why don't we have it? We don't have it because an America first foreign policy would be self-interested. We would declare to the world that the only thing we care about are American interests. And the fact is that even a politically incorrect president like Donald Trump cannot do that because at the end of the day, even Donald Trump is too conventional to do that. Even Donald Trump, right, lobbed those bombs into Syria when, uh, I don't know, when chemical weapons were used and women and children were being killed. And oh my God, right? Was America first about that? Nothing. Zilt zero. Even he, not even, he is manipulated by the common idea that foreign policy, just like everything in life, which is just the traditional way in which we're raised, should be guided by self-sacrifice. A true America first foreign policy, whether it's applied to Vietnam or whether it's applied to the war today, 
would require that we have a willingness, a moral understanding of self-interest, a rational self-interest, why rational self-interest is the appropriate way to live one's life. Only when we have a culture that is willing to accept, willing to embrace self-interest and denounce and reject the idea of self-sacrifice, the idea of living for others and sacrificing for others, can we have a, a rational foreign policy that gets us out of the United Nations, that gets us out of funding Pakistan and Saudi Arabia and a million other countries that we're funding, gets us out of having troops all over the world fighting for other people's causes? Why are guys dying in Niger? Why are our guys dying in God-forsaken places on this planet. There's no American interest at stake. There's no self-interest at stake. But then again, nothing's changed, as I said, from 1968. Just the numbers. In 1968, thousands and thousands of American youth were dying in the jungles of Vietnam. For what? For nothing. For the sake of I don't know, uh, 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 South, Co South Vietnamese democracy, really? That's what we were dying for? Sacrifice, self-sacrifice. That was the guide for Vietnam, and it's still the guide of our foreign policy today. It still dominates. Once in a while, Donald Trump does something, not out of any principle. Who knows why? Because he's got, you know, some of his advisors are half-decent, but if it was principle, it would be more all-encompassing. It would be more substantial. But once in a while, like, you'll cut away a little bit of support from Pakistan. But not all support, not all countries that are, advocate, that, that, are, that are fighting against us, actively inspiring terrorists against us. No, just some and a little bit. You know, that's, that's, a, that's a, a, a pragmatist who promised America first he's floating with a little self-interest but can't actually do it can't actually do it, and of course, he cannot do it. He cannot do it. All right, I've, I've already articulated what a, what a proper, uh, proper foreign policy of self-interest. I indicated a little bit about what that would look like, what it would have looked like in 68, what it would look like today. But, I, but I, what I would recommend is a couple of books that articulate the full case of a foreign policy of self-interest. Oh, looks like uh, looks like my caller gave up on uh, on uh, on waiting on waiting this out. Um, but uh, all right, the first book is uh, "Winning the Unwinnable War." Uh, Ilan Jono, I've got a few essays. I've got a few essays in there as well, and uh, it's um, it's a book specifically about. The war on on uh, on the jihadis, on the ideology, and the 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 manifestation of that ideology in all these terrorist groups and the countries that fund and support them, we articulate what an America first true foreign policy would look like with regard to that war. And the second one is Peter Schwartz's book, uh, which is uh, which is basically about self-interest in foreign policy. And um, a foreign policy of self-interest, it's called, a moral ideal for America. 
It's exactly right. That's what we need. It's what we don't have. It's what, you know, uh, Donald Trump is a pale, 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 pale attempt at, no, well, it's not an attempt at anything. Uh, but he uses the language of it, right? America first, with nothing of the action, nothing of the understanding, nothing of the principles that would lead to a real foreign policy of self-interest, a true America first foreign policy. So I encourage you, uh, pick up Peter Schwartz's book. It's on Amazon, Foreign Policy of Self-Interest, uh, and, uh, and Ilan Jono's book, Winning the Unwinnable War, two books that really articulate that particular case uh, on foreign policy. Okay, so that's kind of my argument about nothing much has changed uh, in terms of vis-a-vis -vis foreign policy from 1968. Um, but there's a lot more. There's a lot more about that because if you look at it, what's going on in the universities, what's been going on in the universities, if you look at the election of Donald Trump, the motivation, some of the motivation behind that, kind of the backlash against the wacky left, there's a lot of that in 1968. But we're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, I want to talk about the universities, and I want to talk about the elections, 68 and today. I want to talk about, I want to talk a little bit about crime, because, again, Donald Trump made such a big deal about crime. Uh, I want to talk about crime. And, um, yeah, we'll, we'll, a lot to talk about. All right, we'll be right back. You're listening to your own book show on, uh, on the Blaze Radio Network. We'll be back right after this. PhD, author, media contributor. This is the Yaron Brooks Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Ron Brooks Show. All right. You're listening to Ron Brooks, and uh, we are uh, on the Blaze Radio Network. And we've got actually Otis on the line. Otis wants to talk about oil prices. I don't know if that's related to the foreign policy question, but go ahead, Otis. Yeah, hello. Actually calling in from the UK. Wow. All right. Cool. Y yeah, hello. Yes, I can hear you. Yeah, um, I was uh, I was listening to you a couple of minutes earlier. You mentioned that we can ask questions about 2018 predictions. So I wanted to ask ahead. about the oil prices. Yep. I was actually watching an economist on YouTube. I'm not sure if that's a valid place to be getting information, but he mentioned that uh, oil prices are oil oil prices are currently very low, a bit too low compared to what the data shows is going to be produced from shale oil from America. So he expects that there's going to be an astronomical or at least a significant increase in oil prices for 2018. I just wanted to confirm from your from your understanding or from what you have researched if this is true or if this is false. Because now was this Peter Schiff? Did you were you listening to Peter Schiff? Um, no, it was uh, Chris Chris Matson. Okay, I don't know Chris Matson. Um, no, yeah, I don't. I, yeah, I don't. I don't think oil prices are too low. I, I I don't know what that means. There is a market in oil. There's a market in oil, yeah. and there is supply and demand, and yeah. um, shale. The, 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 the fact that we can produce so much oil with the use of uh, a fracking technology has, has increased mm -hmm. the supply of oil dramatically, which has basically led mm -hmm. to a reduction in price. Now, what could happen in the next coming year is if uh, the economy, the global economy is doing fairly well, 
particularly developing countries, their economies have picked up. Europe has picked want up. want to admit those into our country. the United States who will support done, our country. Whoops, has done, um, the United States has done uh, okay economically. And the consequence of this increased economic activity is an increased demand for oil. So you're seeing a slight increase in demand, which might put pressure on oil prices to go up. But I think, I think supply will match it. I, I think there's no, there's no question. There's plenty of supply as the uh, sanctions on Iran are lifted. Uh, there'll be more supply coming in from Iran. There'll be more oil coming in from, uh, uh, from the country of Iran. Uh, as um, some of the oil fields in Iraq have been taken away from ISIS and now in the hands of the Iraqi government, you'll see an increase in the supply of oil from, uh, from Iraq. So I just don't see the dynamics by which oil prices take off. The only, the only question is, is if inflation picks up uh, this coming year. And uh, if, yeah. if inflation, uh, price inflation, uh, if we finally get all that money that has been uh, printed and circulated, well, it's been printed, it hasn't been circulated that much. If, if that causes price inflation and drives up the price of oil as a consequence of just the, the printing of so much. But I, I don't really see that in 2018 as a, as a big spike in oil prices. But then again, I'm not an expert on oil prices. It just strikes me as... Demand is high, so that would tend to increase prices of oil, but supply is healthy and plentiful. Fracking is going strong. I just don't see the dynamic that would limit the supply. And then we just heard one of the, one of the again, better things that Donald Trump is doing. We just heard that um, they're going to allow oil drilling off the coast of pretty much the entire United States anywhere. Now, that'll take years before it's actually implemented, but that is a positive sign in terms of the lowering the price of oil because we expect that way in the future there will be more oil and, and, and uh, you know, people will, will hurry up and dig up the oil um, uh, in the meantime. So uh, I don't see the dynamic of, of unless this economy takes off, the global economy takes off, and there's massive demand that outstrips the supply of oil. I just don't see yeah. any of the economies taking off in that way. I, I, I just don't see it. Okay, thank you for the answer. Sure, pleasure. Thanks for calling in, Otis. I uh, appreciate it. Yeah, and anybody else wants uh, uh, meaningless predictions from me about the stock market or about the economy, about anything like, else like that, I'm happy to give predictions. Uh, I'm not sure how much I'll be able to live up to them, but uh, but we can. Uh, I'm sure you'll call me on them if... Uh, if uh, if I don't, you know, the price of oil right now is high enough so that the oil-based economies in the Middle East and in Canada are not suffering too badly as a consequence in other countries that are dependent. But they're not also booming like they were during the uh, $100 a barrel days of oil. And and I think I think you can expect that to sustain itself. Now, again, a war will change that. A massive terrorist attack will change that. Anything that increases global instability, that creates question marks in terms of the supply of oil in the future, would place that all into question. So that's the best that I can do in terms of an answer. All right, if you want to ask about predictions for 2018, uh, any more predictions about 2018, you can call in 888-900-3393. 
888-900-3393. So I want to I wanna shift away from foreign policy, although if you want to call in with a question about foreign policy, I will take it. But I want to shift away from that topic. And I want to I get back to this comparison of 68 to today. And I'd say from 68 to today, very little has changed on principle in terms of our foreign policy. If anything, we are much weaker today than we were in 68. In 68, we were willing to bomb people. We were willing to actually deploy massive numbers of troops to try to win, not kind of half-heartedly. Today, we don't even pretend. Uh, we, we don't kill anybody. We don't want to kill anybody. We try to avoid casualties. If our people die, that's okay. As long as the enemy people don't die, uh, we, we don't deploy troops. We, we stay away. So there's a, there's a, in a sense in which the self-sacrifice has gotten worse. If the last war we won, the last war of self-interest was World War II, then ever since then, we've had less and less and less and less and less self-interest, more and more and more and more self-sacrifice, and that's where we are today. We have a self-sacrificial foreign policy, and Donald Trump has not done anything substantial yet to change that at all. All right. Um, Let's, uh, let's look at some other aspect of 1968. The Student Rebellion. Now, the Student Rebellion in the 1960s dominated the 1960s. It was a major, major feature of the decade. It was, it was from 1964, from the Berkeley riots in 1964 through Woodstock in 1969, through the, the anti-war demonstrations into the beginning of the 1970s. It was dominated by the hippies, by the anti-war demonstrations, by the student revolt, uh, by a counterculture that, uh, you know, just, just, uh, you know, wrecked havoc on American academia and American institutions. Uh, in 1968, the student protests at Columbia University were major national news and, and, you know, really shook people up. The extent to which the students were willing to violate property rights and just occupy university buildings, and then the extent to which the police were willing to use violence in order to remove them. Uh, but this is also an era in which there was a lot of um, a lot of demonstrations. Now, people today think that this was the era of free speech. This is the you know the era in which students demanded free speech and got free speech on campuses. No. No, I mean, uh, this is, was not that at all. Quite the, the opposite. Here's, here's an article, granted by a conservative, uh, from the era, from the period. It was written in 1969, about what was going on in campuses. And see if this doesn't sound like today. The right of unpopular political figures to speak without disruption on campuses was being violated. That is, if you were, this, I'm not quoting, if you were an unpopular political figure, people would demonstrate and prohibit you from speaking on campus. That sounds like today. The right of professors to give courses and lectures without disruption that makes it impossible for others to listen or to engage in open discussion. That was being threatened and being attacked in 1968. Sounds a lot like today. The right of professors to engage in research that they have freely chosen. Again, sounds like today that you don't have that right. This is all the stuff that the student movement, the, the, the so-called free, so free speech movement, was questioning. The right of government and corporations to come into campus to give information to recruit personnel. 
That was not being allowed. The right of students to prepare themselves as offices on the campus. That's ROTC. We're banned from university campuses. You had those crises here today. Today they're just banned, so you don't hear about it. <sighs> so all of these things were being attacked in 1968. And yeah, they're being attacked again today. We're seeing exactly the same thing on American campuses today as we saw back then. Even more intensely, in the name today of what is called identity politics, what is called tribalism in another word, but the hippies of 1960s became the professors of the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s, trained a new generation that is even more radical and nuts Radical is a bad word. Even more nuts than the 60s. That now is attacking free speech. Not from the perspective of just going after the establishment, but from the perspective of going after the establishment and proposing to replace it with a racist ideology of identity politics. Uh, it, it, but it was amazing to me when I read this article how similar it was, how similar the concerns of intellectuals were in the 1960s to the, to the concerns of the intellectuals today. Uh, it's just today much, much worse. What the left is advocating for is much, much worse. And what's interesting is that nothing has gotten better uh, in, 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 in that sense in academia. In a, it, it, it's gotten a lot worse over the last 50 years in if you project out another 50 years, it becomes really, really, really scary. All right, you're listening to the Iran Book Show. We're here on the Blaze Radio Network. Uh, this is the end of the first hour. We'll be back for the second hour right after these messages. Applying the principles of rational self-interest and individual rights on your radio. It's the Iran Brook Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome to a discussion of radical fundamental principles of freedom, rational self-interest, laissez-faire capitalism, and individual rights. The Yaron Brook Show starts now. All right, we're back, and today we're kind of uh, previewing 2018 by looking back at 1968, a little bit of compare and contrast, what has changed, what is the same, and trying to predict a little bit about what's going to happen in 2018. We'll see how much of a prediction we actually get to. Uh, we're still, uh, we're still uh, doing a lot of this comparison. Uh, if you want to help me make predictions for 2018, uh, 888-900-3393, 888-900-3393. And, uh, yeah, that, that, would be, uh, that would be great if we... Um, if, uh, if you could help me with the predictions. All right. So one of the things that strikes me when I, when I was reading all the events of 1968 is how bad things were back then. I mean, yeah, campuses were bad. Campuses are bad today. The war was much worse then than anything we experienced today, just in terms of the casualties, the number of people. We had a draft. Can you imagine? If you're young listening out there, we had a draft. Wait, where you had to go into the army, whether you wanted to or not, you got shipped overseas to die in a jungle for, 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 on a war that nobody could explain to you why we were engaged in. 
political leaders, major political leaders, were being assassinated. From JFK to 1968, you get Martin Luther King and Robert F. Kennedy. Robert Kennedy, the, 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 the guy who is leading the Democratic field going into the, going into the 1968 election, possibly could have become the President of the United States, was assassinated. We haven't had a president assassinated since JFK for over 50 years. We haven't really had an, an, an attempt where somebody actually pulled it off since, I think, the assassination attempt on President Reagan. There was real chaos. There was real demonstrations. And then, you know, I looked up crime statistics. Now, what's interesting about crime, and this is in the whole context of one of my goals in life, I guess, is to debunk this idea that Donald Trump presented to the American people that we're living in an age of carnage in the streets of America. It just really ticked me off when he did that. And, and it, it, I hate it, hate it, hate it. I, I find it despicable when politicians create an environment of fear in order to, to, to convince people to vote for them. That is so authoritarian. That is so the methodology of every fascist, I didn't call Donald Trump a fascist, but every fascist in history, you know, f cause people to really, really be afraid. And then I'm the solution. Law and order. What law and order? What, what are we talking about? So in 1968 was before crime really spiked in America. From 1968 till 1991, crime went up almost every single year at an alarming rate. From 1968, sometime in the mid-60s, all the way to 1991. Since 68 was not anywhere near the peak in terms of crime during that period. Here are some statistics. Okay. In 1968, there were 199 million people in America. And 13,800 murders were committed. I'm just using murders as a proxy, but you can take other kinds of crime as well particularly things like auto theft, auto theft, the, the, the examples are even more dramatic, and burglary, even more dramatic. But 199 million, 13,800 murders, which is about 69 murders for every 100,000 people. I think I did the math right there. 1991, there were already 250 million people, but murders had almost doubled to 24,700 to the rate of almost 100 per 100,000 people. So 98 murders per 100,000. In 2016, and I think 2017 is even better than this, the, the 2017 numbers are even lower, but 2016, we had 323 million people in the United States. 17,250 murders were committed, still too many. But that is only 53 for 100,000. In other words, per capita, 2016 was much safer, much safer than 1968. Indeed, 2016 is about as safe in terms of murder, including terrorist activity, including all the terrorist stuff, right? In terms of murder, it was about the same as 1960, which is one of the lowest ever. Right? One of the lowest ever. So, carnage in the streets, really? We're actually, so in terms of crime, things are much better today than the one in 1968. 
CCTH saw real problems on campuses, very much resembling what we're seeing today on campuses with all demonstrations against uh, Ben Shapiro and uh, Milo and all, all the stuff going on on campuses. Uh, professors not being allowed to teach back then, professors today not being allowed to teach. It's just today the students are even more radical than they were back there. Radicals are bad word. They were more, they were, they're, they're more nutty. They're more crazy. They're more lefty. They're more subjectivist. They're more uh, detached from reality. And they actually, and their ideology today, postmodernism, is more entrenched. The, the, the lack of belief in reality and reason. And that, of course, comes from the ideology that they had back then. They were, they were nihilist then and then nihilist now. And somehow something happened. So that between 1968 and today, or let's say between sometime in the 70s and sometime in, during the Obama administration, we had, I don't know, relative sanity. It wasn't crazy. It wasn't nuts. Uh, and then we're back to nuttiness. And, and that's kind of interesting because things calmed down at the universities starting in the mid-70s. So once the Vietnam War ended, Things calmed down, partially because I think the students who were demonstrating in the 60s, a number of things happened to them. Some of them got jobs at those universities. And now they got to teach. Now they got to be the establishment. Now they got to train future generations in the, in the, in the crap that they were arguing for and the, and the horrible ideas that they believed in. Right? And then some others got jobs and suddenly realized, oh, wait a minute, life is not the way you know, my, I, I pretended it was the, the Marxist nonsense my, my professors were teaching me is wrong. And they actually, you know, they became normal, I guess. Middle of the road Americans. So something happened. But then as these professors were teaching more and more and more crazy leftist stuff, more and more and more anti-reason, anti-capitalism. It just got worse over the decades. Then now it has exploded, erupted in a new student movement, if you will, of the left. Now, I'm a little optimistic about, about the backlash to that. And I also think, by the way, in American culture, there was a huge backlash against this. And this is, this brings me to the election of 1968. I think one of the reasons that Richard Nixon won that election is a backlash, a backlash uh, to the craziness on the left. I think people said, wait a minute, this stuff on the universities, this is nuts. And this is the same people who are pushing, you know, Truman and pushing Humphrey. I mean, it's the same party. And this is the Democratic Party that had these massive demonstrations outside, not demonstrations, saying that the Democratic Party was too conservative, was too liberal, it was, oh, I hate liberal, too leftist. Like, liberal is a good word. I hate to give it to the left. Um, but that they're too conservative. So that the, the real force, the real energy in the Democratic Party was on the extreme left. And I think that parallels today. I think to a large extent, Donald Trump was elected as a backlash to kind of uh, uh, years in which it, the feeling was, and I think the reality was, that the left had become nuttier and nuttier and nuttier, less, less connected to reality, more and more statist, 
and uh, more and more anti-American. And I think tr the Obama administration, to a large extent, manif manifested this and cultivated this, that on universities, the professors were becoming crazier and crazier and crazier. And uh, at the left was winning the so-called cultural battles and all these fields. And as a consequence, life was getting horrific and there needed to be a backlash in Donald Trump is the backlash. And I think Donald Trump is a lot worse for America than Richard Nixon. And Richard Nixon was really bad, really bad. Uh, but it makes sense. The left is worse, and the response to the left is worse. The response to the left is not a response to, not a response towards capitalism, towards individualism, towards freedom, but a response to a different form of collectivism, a different form of emotionalism, a different form of the prevalent problem, and I'll get to the prevalent problem when we come back. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll take a, a call from um, Russell in Virginia, although it might take me a little while, Russell, so please be patient, and because uh, I want to talk about the underlying causes here. And um, and we'll talk about what is what drives left and right today in America and what drove Left, to some extent, right in America back in 68, but I think we've gotten a lot worse in this respect. You're listening to Iran Brook Show. We'll be right back. This is the Iran Brook Show, the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Iran Brooks Show, and we're, we're looking at 2018 a little bit through the prism of 1968, 50 years ago exactly. And I think we'll be returning to 1968 often this year because so much happened that year that's meaningful and important. Um, but it's interesting. This student movement on campuses is really interesting. It's interesting because of how much it parallels the world in which we live in today. And, uh, you know, here's an example, another example. So the argument provided by the students marching, demonstrating, rioting on campuses in America in 1968 was that the country was ruled, and I'm quoting this article, the country was ruled, an article written in the 60s, the country was ruled by a cruel and selfish oligarchy devoted to the extension of the power and privileges of the few and denying liberty and even life to many, to the many. And to further assertion that the university was an integral part of this evil system. Now note that this is the argument made today both by the radical, by the, uh, uh, by the nutty left and by the people who elected Donald Trump, right? It's the establishment. It's the intellectuals. It's the 1%. It's the people who control everything. They're controlling things for themselves. We're all being exploited. And we got to do something about it. We got to elect this outsider to drain the swamp. Right? But the swamp was identified in 1968. And it's still, you know, they, they, they talked about it in the same terms. And of course, they misidentified the problem then. And they're misidentifying the problem now. They misidentify the problem on the left. And they misidentify the problem on the right. Because the problem isn't, uh, I don't know, 
power and privilege and rich in the 1%. The problem is statism. The problem is collectivism. The problem is unlimited government. The problem is government that has the power to do anything, that has unlimited power. And reigning in government, reducing the power of government, reducing the influence of government. Nobody talks about that. Nobody really talks about that. Again, that would be self-interested. Nobody's talking about, you know, reigning in the welfare state, reigning in entitlements, reigning in the regulatory state. A little bit, again, at the fringes here and there sporadically from the Trump administration. But nothing systematic, nothing principled in the name of capitalism, limited government in the founding principles of this country. Nobody talks about that. Nobody talked about it in 68. Nixon wasn't the solution. Nixon was just a, a backlash, and then he embraced the swamp, just like Donald Trump, to a large extent, embraces the swamp. What, I, what strikes me as so common between 68 and today and maybe when maybe it's always been there. Maybe it's there every year in the middle. But maybe, maybe it went away, or maybe I don't know. It manifests itself differently. Was the nineteen the nineteen sixties basically the first time in which as Ayn Rand made this edification? Now Ayn Rand during this era during this period wrote some of her amazing essays, just amazing essays. Um, that I highly recommend. They're in the virtue of selfishness and they're in capitalism, the unknown ideal, and it's some of the newsletters she published. But amazing, uh, amazing uh, essays about the student rebellion and about the, the, the culture of the 1960s and about the politics of the 1960s. And she was spot on, spot on. And fundamentally, she recognized that the conflict going on in the culture was a conflict between emotion and reason. What do you elevate? What do you see as important? What do you cultivate? Emotions are the hippies of Woodstock, the hippies of the student movement and demonstrations and just emoting. And also, I would say, the emotion of, of just a, a, you know, a backlash to anything, you know, and blaming the, the, the 1%, but just an era of, you know, the idea was free love. Now, I, I'm a big proponent of aspects of the sexual revolution, but the idea of free love, of, of sex with anybody, again, all emotionalism, all instant gratification, no reason, no rational thought, no planning, no long-term thinking and vision. Right? Contrasted, and Ayn Rand contrasted this, with the Apollo launching, which represented reason and technology and, and, and the freeing of the human mind and therefore of capitalism. The, the idea that man's mind left free could produce amazing things. And in the Apollo landing, it's, it's an example of the government doing something amazing, right? And she wasn't for the government funding the Apollo project, but she still had to admire the Apollo project in what it represented. And the technology companies at the time, and the businessmen at the time, producing, creating, building, making stuff. And you look around today, and you see the same conflict. You see the same conflict, basically, between emotion and reason. With, if anything, today, I think, emotion being even more dominant than it was back in the 1960s. Because you could say, at least in the 60s, I think, to some extent, 
that middle America, most of America, was on the kind of on the reason side, not explicitly, not consistently, not fully, but it wasn't driven by emotion. It was driven by trying to live a good life and trying to think things through and valuing reason. And, and part of the, Ayn Rand identifies part of the response to Apollo 11 enthusiasm around it was that the reason side was being awakened or, 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 or be manifesting itself, not awakened. But that a vast Numbers of Americans rejected the emotionalism of the students, the emotionalism of the demonstrations, the violence all around them. And, and, and as a backlash to all that, voted for, for Richard Nixon, who, while not a very good candidate, was not an, was not exactly an emotionalist. I mean, he, he appealed to reason even if he, he was wrong about most things. Versus today. The left is still as an emotionalist, actually much more emotionalist than it was back then, driven by emotion through and through. The right has become driven by emotion as well. So that this time the candidate as the backlash against the left was not a Richard Nixon, as bad as he was, but a candidate who exuded emotion, that was all about emotion, that manifested emotion, that expressed only emotion, that was the anti-intellectual, anti-cognition, anti-thinking, anti-rational, anti-reason candidate of the right. And that's what you had left. You had emotion on left, emotion on right. And in that sense, what has been, what 50 years post-68, what we're seeing is that the emotionalism that characterized the 68 among, if you will, the fringe left is now everywhere in this country. It's now dominant. And the, and the, the space for reason and rationality has shrunk. And the only place for that reason and rationality, in my view, today is in technology. It's in Silicon Valley. I know many of you hate Silicon Valley because they're such leftists, but the fact is that that is where reason still holds. It's in some parts of business that have not become 100% crony. So not GE, not Boeing. That's where the elements of reason still hold on. But more and more and more of our culture is dominated by raw, brute emotion. And therefore, we will see more and more and more of that you know, dominated ultimately through more and more force, more and more coercion, more and more violence, because that's where emotion has to lead. There's no other place for it to lead. So, you know, we still latch on to our respect for technology, for our respect for science, for our respect for business. It's, it's what saves America. It's, the, <laughs> it's our saving graces that we still admire those things. But less and less so, less and less so, as, as so many people here even are, 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 temp, are, are prone to criticize Silicon Valley oh, without showing the kind of respect that they deserve uh, for their productive genius, for their innovative genius, for the, for the fact that they've increased our standard of living. Okay, one other thing I want to I wanna say about the last 50 years, and that is, and, and this goes off of this emotionalism uh, 
emotionalism point. This is, this is, um, that is that the left has won, always winning. It doesn't matter who gets elected. The left is winning. The left is winning across the board. Um, we, are, we are more and more of a statist country in terms of, uh, in terms of economics. Uh, the statist agenda with regard to, I don't know, uh, on the, we, the, sorry, the leftist agenda, where it's a better agenda in terms of, uh, let's say, uh, women, in terms of glass ceilings, in terms of uh, gays, they've won that. They've won that. It's good that they've won that, but they've won that. In terms of abortion, they won that. It's good that they won that, but they won that. So we become a more emotional society, which is what the left was really pushing for. The right has become emotional around, you know, Donald Trump, but also around religion, become more and more and more religious. I'd say Americans are more religious today as a cultural phenomenon. Religion is more of a cultural phenomenon today in America than it was in 1968. And that leads to more emotionalism, less respect for reason. So one of the things that strikes me is the extent to which the left has won. And the only thing, the only positive I would say, which is pretty amazing, and I don't have a complete explanation for this, is how good life is in spite of all that. Standard of living is higher, great technology, we got supercomputers in our pockets, life is pretty good in spite of the left winning so many of these battles and culture being so much worse. All right, we'll be right back after a break. You're listening to your Run Book Show on the Blaze Radio Network. You won't hear traditional political views here. This is the Yaron Brook Show on the Blaze Radio Network. to the Iran Brook Show on the Blaze Radio Network. So I think we can see, we can say that during the 1960s, 1968, call it 68, call it, you know, beginning of the 1970s, both the old left and the old right died. Uh, Ayn Rand has a famous talk that she gave, and it's also an essay, and I think it's capitalism, not an ideal called conservatism an obituary to an idea, where she declares conservatism is dead. The good conservatism. The conservatism that believed in the founding principles of the country, the conservatism that believed in free markets and individual rights, she declared is dead. The conservatives had become motivated by religion and by utilitarian arguments about the benefits of capitalism, but had adopted basically statism and the welfare state as their own. And we're not true defenders of the founders, and not true defenders of the founding, of the founding principles of this country. And at the same time, the old left died. The socialist Marxist old left. And I would argue, and I have, that the people today on campuses and the people in the late 1960s on campuses were not 
Marxists and socialists. They had studied Marxism and socialism and found them lacking. They were, and they are, nihilists. It's not that they believe in some utopian social system one day somewhere where all can be happy. It's they reject the idea of happiness. It's not that they believe that we just need to regulate and redistribute more wealth. It's that they want to destroy wealth. Nihilism, which is what these students in the 1960s were advocates for, and what the students today on American campuses are advocates for, does not believe in a better future. It's not striving towards a better future. It just believes that what exists today is evil and bad and needs to be destroyed. And that's where we are today, and that's where we were in 68, and we took a breather from that ideology for a little while, unless you were on a campus somewhere and got it from your professors. But it wasn't, it had no energy behind it, and something has happened over the last few years to bring the energy behind it. The difference is that now you have nihilism on the right as well as on the left. Not just is the old right dead, but now the, the new right has adopted the nihilism of the new left and combined it. Call it the alt-right, whatever you want to call it. Nihilism on the left, nihilism on the right. Nihilism has been the winner of the last 50 years. Principle, the ideas of the founders, capitalism, Thinking, reason, has been the loser in the last 50 years. And we stand here, you know, facing 2018, and, it, you know, it's hard to be optimistic. It's hard to be optimistic given the state of our universities, given the state of our culture, given the state of our political culture, and given the inhabitants of the White House, the House of Representatives, and the Senate. On the other hand, just, you know, who, who would have predicted 1968 that in spite of all of that, in spite of how bad things were in the late 60s, how bad things were to become during the whole 1970s economically, we would recover from that and economically speaking, doing as well, do as well as we are doing today. And we need to explain that. That needs to be explained. How come? And I have an explanation that's not very popular among the people who listen to the show and not very popular among uh, those who support Trump. I have an explanation, but it needs to be explained. Because clearly the culture has deteriorated. Clearly, in, in, in many respects, you know, government has grown, government is regulating in some respects more. Um, and yet here we are doing pretty well. Doing pretty well. Um, Okay, let's, we're going to take a call. I promised to take uh, Russell's call from Virginia. So, hi, Russell. Um, you're in the Iran Brooks Show. Oh, Mr. Brooks. Hello again. Hey. Uh, oh, the, I have a good prediction for 2018 for you. Sure. So, I think by the end of 2018, we're going to see the housing, housing bubble in Australia and Canada pop. Because I was reading an article for the United Kingdom saying, like, one one out of uh, one in three sellers have reduced their prices, which is the highest proportion since the recession of 2012. So I think I think their housing bubble has popped. So I think we're going to start seeing a chain reaction soon. I don't know what you thought. So what happens after Canada and Australia? What's the chain reaction? Uh, I think from Canada, Australia, then it's going to be America. Then from that point, it's just going to be a complete. We're going to go right back into a full depression. I think we're going to have like a world depression, like we saw during the last Great Depression. Okay. 
Yeah, so, uh, so, you know, it's hard to argue against that. I, I, I'm, and I'm not, I don't think it's going to happen in 2018. I, I don't see it, the world ready yet. Um, okay. I, I would, I think it's a, I think it's further out into the future. But I do, I do agree with you. I, I, I think that there's a, uh, there's what looks like a housing bubble in, um, in Canada and in Australia. There's certainly in parts of the United States, very reminiscent of 2006 and 7. There are housing bubbles in the United States. Uh, the Fed has created huge quantities of money uh, that is sitting on reserve at the Federal Reserve, at, at the bank reserves. Uh, if that money starts circ- circulating more aggressively in the economy, you could see other things going up, up in price. We talked about oil, but, but uh, food prices, and uh, you might see general price inflation. Uh, you might see a bunch of, of these kind of prices going up. I think what would trigger the kind of scenario that you're predicting is, is inflation, is, is price inflation, which then would result in the Federal Reserve uh, increasing interest rates dramatically, which would then result in all these bubbles crashing, the, the bond market would crash, and, and that could turn us into a great recession again or, another, or a great depression or something worse. So I think the sequel of, sequence of events is going to be a, a, what seems to be like a strong, robust economy, but really is driven by um, printing money, resulting in bubbles and price inflation, which causes the Fed to raise interest rates, which then causes the bubbles to burst, including housing, and that's where you get the recession and, and maybe worse than a recession. Uh, so that's where I think it's going to happen. Interest rates are already increasing slowly. Uh, I, I think there's a good reason to believe they'll increase more next year. But I think you're going to see, before the next big one, I think you're going to see prices go up in more than just housing. You're going to have to see a more generalized kind of price inflation for the bubble to actually burst because I think interest rates are going to have to go quite a bit higher than where they are today. And that could be caused by... All this optimism that's out there about Donald Trump's economy, optimism caused by the tax cuts, um, which, is, which causes maybe a loosening up of bank regulation that encourages banks to lend more, which then leads to them taking all their money printed by the Fed and circulating it more into the economy and by doing that driving up prices. And then the Fed panics and drives up interest rates and boom, everything comes crashing down. That's right. kind of the scenario I see. I, I see it more happening in 19 or 20 than in 18, but, but it could happen this year. Okay. Thank you. Sure. Sure. Uh, Bye-bye. Anytime. So that's the only prediction. All right. One prediction. All right. Um, thanks, Russell. Really appreciate the call. If you want to call in and make a prediction, ask me about predictions. Um, I'll take on anything, stock markets, uh, whatever you want. 1-88-900-3393. 888-900-3319. And if you want to ask a question about anything, just an open-ended, any topic, uh, any topic appropriate for a general audience, uh, family audience, then you can call in 888-900-3393 after the next break, which is coming up in about a minute. I'm just going to take general questions, anything you want. So the person who called in originally to ask me about, I can't remember now anymore, feel free to call in now and I will take your call. Um, all right, so since 1968, it's 50-year anniversary to 1968, we have become safer and we have become richer. Quality and standard of life, 
when it comes to safety and when it comes to money, technology, stuff, far better than it was in 1968. Culturally, our universities, the way people think is, is much worse. We become more emotionalist, we become less educated, we know less history, the student focus on, uh, you know, on uh, what's the establishment and the privilege, the 1% and everything else has, has become much broader now. Not only do we have Occupy Wall Street, but we also have the, uh, the, the, you know, the Donald Trump movement, if you will. Now, and I'm not saying everybody in the Donald Trump movement is an emotionalist. I'm saying the movement, the people who are really motivated and incentivized by Donald Trump, that is emotionalism. That is, and you can see it sometimes on, on my chats where it doesn't matter what Donald Trump does, says. It's, it's, it's great with them. Emotionalism is rampant today. So culturally, that's all much worse. And, and it's interesting. It's interesting that, that the good, the material stuff can get better just as the spiritual, cultural stuff gets worse and our universities get worse. It can't, that can't, that's not sustainable. At some point, we will suffer, and maybe that's the crash we just talked about. We will suffer materially from the spiritual deficit and the deficit of reason that is so prevalent in the culture we live in today. We're not in a culture of thinking. All right, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Ron Book Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Best-selling author, prolific media contributor, PhD in finance. This is the Yaron Brook Show. The Blaze Radio Network. We're back, and um, yeah, Mike's called back from Pennsylvania. Let me take that call, and then I, I want to cover a different topic. Hi, Mike. How's it going? Hey, what's up, Yaron? I'm good. I'm How good. You doing? I was uh, I was just calling to uh, ask you about. Uh, I've been reading this book lately. I'm in the middle of it. It's uh, by uh, uh, Thomas Sowell. Uh, yep. uh, Black rednecks and white liberals, yep. and I was actually very fascinated about some of his input. Uh, I mean, he goes back way toward uh, like the 1700s in the in the beginning of our uh, the United States as we know it, all the way up until current times. But uh, I was very uh, impressed on his view on how, uh, in his terms, that uh, he believes that culture plays more of a role than anything else as far as race relations. And I was just curious how you felt on his take on that, or if you've even never read his work. I've read some of his work. I haven't read all of it, but but I'm a I'm a admirer of Thomas Sowell. As they as they you know, he's one of the better people out there. Um, I think he's flawed, but but I think almost everybody's flawed. So, uh, but he's definitely worth reading, and he's definitely worth engaging with. His ideas are worth uh, uh, worth discussing. I think a lot of his stuff on race is is excellent, um, and uh, a lot of his stuff on economics is very good. I, I don't think he's a great economist. He's a good economist, but he's a good. I think he's a good cultural commentator. He, he strikes me as a little too. Well, not strikes me. He is a little too conservative for my liking rather than, you know, uh, uh, a radical like I am. I'm a radical for capitalism and I'm, I'm challenging all the fundamental questions uh, 
that are around in the culture, he doesn't. He's, he's somewhat accepting of many of the, of, of the bad ideas in the culture, like, like collectivism and altruism. He accepts certain elements of them. But again, he's one of the better thinkers out there, so don't get me wrong. Um, this is the thing about when conservatives say it's culture, culture what matters. I agree with him. Culture is much more important than politics. But the question fundamentally is what determines culture? And the left will tell you what determines culture is race or gender um, or class or, or things like that. And, and, and the right will tell you what determines culture is religion or tradition. Some of them today in the, in the modern right will say, yeah, we agree, it's race. Um, so they all miss the point. They miss what is important here. What, what determines culture and what determines politics and what determines everything in life are ideas. And what I mean by ideas is philosophy. So what, what uh, Thomas Sowell and what most conservatives do is they ignore philosophy or they have embraced a bad philosophy and therefore they're ineffectual in combating the bad philosophy of the left because they've embraced a bad philosophy of the right. But they ignore fundamental ideas. And, and the reason they ignore fundamental ideas is if you take fundamental ideas seriously, you cannot be religious. Sorry, guys. Because religion is the negation of reason when it comes to fundamental ideas, like the nature of the universe and the nature of human cognition. So what you find is, and this is why most intellectuals are leftists, because they reject religion, as they should, but then they have no, they have no where to go, they have no home, and they tend to gravitate towards the only home there is, if, 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 you know, which, is, which is the left. Because they can't reject religion, they can't challenge fundamental philosophical ideas presented by the left. So you see this even with Jordan Peterson, who's one of the better guys, right? Or with Thomas Sowell, or with these guys. Whenever, they, whenever it's, it's, it's really fundamental issues, they refer to, well, but God or Jesus or the, the, the Bible says X. Well, who cares? Who cares? Right? Yeah, you have to argue I, I, from I reason, heard. and that's what they don't do. Sorry, go ahead, Mike. No, I haven't really heard too much of his input as far as religion goes. A lot of the YouTube videos that I've seen and the works that I've read thus far yep. are strictly from like an economical point of view. And, and I loved his debates during the early 70s and the 80s. They seem like very old videos with him and Milton yep. Friedman, and they used oh, to yeah. tackle a lot of oh, these yeah. issues. I'm, yeah, no. I'm, I'm too unaware and ignorant of his uh, religious side of things. I generally you know, but, don't get too much into it. But that's why he doesn't get into more fundamental philosophical questions. That's why he stays on an economic analysis, because... If he gets there, then he have to bring up the religion, and he's a good enough intellectual to know that bringing up religion, religion is a losing proposition. But he is a conservative in, 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 in his embrace of religion. It's not that he's a, he's a religious right, you know, big-time advocate of, of religion in the, in the moral majority sense. No, he's an old-time conservative who still thinks everything is based on religion, but it feels a little embarrassed by trying to actually do it, right? I, I, trying to actually articulate that case. And that's why he can't get deeper. He, and he can't articulate the argument. And the same with Milton Friedman, by the way. Milton Friedman wasn't religious. 
Milton Friedman just didn't want to do philosophy. He didn't believe it was important. He didn't want to go there. It was too controversial. Why discuss ethics when you can discuss economics and it's all utilitarian anyway? He didn't believe there was any importance in philosophy. So Milton Friedman was great if you asked him about the minimum wage or if you asked him about the value of trade. But he fell apart on deeper intellectual arguments because he had none. He, he, he didn't go there, right? Because <clears throat> he was an economist who didn't believe, as unfortunately most economists don't believe, of the importance of philosophy and the importance of philosophical ideas. So that limits Thomas Sowell and it limits Milton Friedman on what they could do. I think with Thomas Sowell is religion limiting him. With Milton Friedman, it's just a disdain for philosophy and, and an acceptance of utilitarianism as the only legitimate way of thinking about the world, which is a kind of economic way of thinking about the world. Right? I got you. That makes sense. Uh, on one last note before I let you go. Sure. Uh, I just wanted to, I, I don't know if you remember me. I called you a few weeks back, and I was talking about the whole uh, Ben Shapiro debate thing or whatever. And yeah. uh, I wanted to bring it up to you that in your free time, if you ever get a chance, uh, that Sam Harris and Ben Shapiro debate did go online a few days ago. You might find it interesting. Him, uh, Sam Harris, and uh, Eric Weinstein had like a two-hour, uh, more of like a discussion than an actual debate per se, but you might find it interesting. Just wanted to give you a heads up. Was it in Was it on Sam Harris's podcast? Yes, it was. It was a okay. Waking Up uh, podcast number 112. It just released like a few days ago. Yeah, I'll, I'll find it. And also, Ben Shapiro was on the Dave Rubin show and had some nasty comments about Ayn Rand. So, um, really? I, I watched that interview. I didn't remember hearing him say, mention I thought he said something about um, objectivism being, um, what was the word he used? Uh, um, garbage. Garbage. Uh, okay, okay. I have to rewatch. I I, I did uh, did it like a once through a couple of days ago, but I have to uh, rewatch it. But yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. But I just figured I'd give you a heads up. You might find it fascinating. The, the no, watch. I appreciate that. And and actually, the next show I do, um, the Living Objectivism show, probably on Monday, will I will be taking on Ben Shapiro's uh, argument um, about Ayn Rand, and I will also be listening to uh, this waking up uh, episode, and, and just maybe do a whole show on Ben Shapiro which will I be fun. You. And uh, and then if we can get Ben Shapiro online to debate me, even better. Even yeah, better. that'd be awesome. That, that would be a lot of All fun. All right, well, look, uh, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll keep watching, man. I love your show, and uh, appreciate take it. care. I appreciate it. Thanks. All right, uh, we're well, almost done. We've got like uh, less than a minute and a half, so uh, all we got to do now is, is wrap up. And, uh, you know, next time maybe we'll talk about, I want to talk about, why we're doing so well materially. So what we indicated earlier, in spite of the deterioration in the culture, in spite of the deterioration in ideas, we are doing better than what anybody would have expected. Uh, the economy is doing better. Uh, innovation is doing better. Our standard of living is doing better than what we would have predicted, given how bad things were in 1968 and the fact that the culture and everything else, what, what is it? that made it possible for us to get as rich as we are today materially. Now, I know there are a lot of people who are poor who are being left behind, but even so, how did we get to where we are today? That's going to be an interesting discussion and quite controversial, I think, because I think the reasons for our success uh, are a lot of the things that Donald Trump and his campaign attacked. Immigration, trade, China, and Silicon Valley. 
All right. You're listening. You've been listening to the Ron Brooks Show. Have a uh, great rest of the weekend, and we'll catch you next Saturday, same time, same place. You're listening to Ron Brook on the Blaze Radio Network. Bye. You're listening to the Yaron Brooks Show on the Blaze Radio Network.